one of the things that I came to understand is that whatever your limit is, you're doing something. Yeah. You know, as long as you can do something, you're fine. And for my dad, what he felt as his shortcoming was as a father and husband. And so mm-hmm. if I am doing that, then I am doing movement work that completes what he wished he could have done better. Hi, I'm Eric. And I'm Brittany. And this is For Colored Nerds. The weekly show where we peel back the layers of Black culture we rarely discuss in mixed company. Today on the show, we have David Dennis Jr. He's a writer, educator, and author of a new memoir, The Movement Made Us. The book recounts the life of David's father, David Dennis Sr., a key figure in the civil rights movement. The book follows David Sr. from his time at Dillard University to his first core meeting to the Freedom Rides and more. Through firsthand accounts from David Sr. and letters from his son, we see the ripple effects of his movement work in his marriages, friendships, and most of all, his relationship with David Jr., Brittany and I really, really enjoyed this book, and we are so excited for y'all to hear our chat with David Dennis Jr. And that is coming right after this break. Cheers to a great day and this ice-cold Corona. You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Or your grandma here with us, making carne asada. She does love a cold Corona. Throw in some dancing. Oh, we can watch the game. I'll drink to that. So a backyard concert with football, food, dancing, and Corona? And your grandma. Or we could keep it simple. Simple is good. Want a Corona? Thanks. Salud to the perfect day. Corona, la vida más fina. Get your Corona at orderCorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona extra beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. David J. Dennis Jr., welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, uh, I'm ready. I'm excited. I'm, I'm in good hands, so I'm good. You know, before we get started, if you can, just tell us a little bit about your father. Tell us about David Dennis Sr. Yeah, so my dad, uh, David Dennis Sr., born in Louisiana, uh, 1940. Went to Dillard University and started getting involved with CORE, New Orleans CORE, and movement work. And just kept going and was one of the original Freedom Riders, one of the um, main architects of the 1964 Freedom Summer, you know, dear friends with Mega Evers and, and Bob Moses and sort of one of the heroes of the movement. You're known for these really just astute takes on Black culture, sports, masculinity. And I also would be remiss not to mention <laughs> your enduring legacy as a headline writer for Bosses. <laughs> It's king shit. But but this book, it it felt like it revealed a much more personal side of you and also your father's life and you guys' relationship. Tell us about the moment you realized that you wanted to write about your father's experiences in the civil rights movement. So I grew up with the, obviously I grew up with my dad's stories. Like he's always told me these real episodic tales of his life that seem fiction. Like as a kid, I was like, well, if I'm going to be a writer, which I had always wanted to be, I'm going to write this book. Then I was in high school and my English teacher, who I will shout out to the ends of the earth, was Alex Davis Williams. Mm -hmm. We read this book 
called The Things They Carried, which was Tim O'Brien's book about Vietnam. Right. And it was broken up into these like little pieces of this time, right? And I told, I said, Ms. Williams, I said, I think this is how I'm going to write my dad's book one day. And to her credit, she didn't just say, okay. She didn't just say, no. She was like, I'm going to hold you to that. Mm. And I, I've held it. I've held this idea that I want to write these short stories about my dad forever. And think about this book as a war story. And, yeah. you know, as I sort of got, you know, was writing, it was always in the back of my head. But I had thought, like, as you mentioned, like I write about all these pop culture things. I was like, I'm going to get two books out the way of like, you know, essays or whatever. Then when I get settled in, I'm going to write this book about my dad, right? Mm -hmm. My dad's 82 years old, right? So it was got to the point where it was like, no, I should probably do this first, you know? And this was all coinciding with Trump being elected, the state of the world. And it was like the universe was lining up that we need to get this done. And so that's when I really started in earnest, bugging him about it, sitting him down with, with like, let's really get these stories together and then starting to write this book. How much hesitation did you have about the collecting of the stories for the book, like going back with your dad into this period of wartime, as Mm -hmm. you put it? I was mostly worried that he would shut down on me. Some of these stories, first of all, he didn't remember up until we were talking about it that Mm -hmm. I'd never heard. And some of these stories were just so painful. The first interview we had, he shut it down, Uh you know, and he was like, look, that's too much, you know, and I held that fear up until the finish line <laughs> that and, and I mean, there's a part in this book of where he sort of disappeared in the middle of, you know, 2020 mm-hmm. in terms of the book stuff, because it was just too much for him. One thing we did was in September 2019, we, we hunkered down in a hotel room and I said, I'm going to get all these stories down mm-hmm. on audio as much as I can in case you shut down or in case, heaven forbid, something happens so that this book can get written. So that was mostly my fear was that there would be there would be something in him that would not allow us to complete the book. I'm glad you brought that up. The idea of these stories that almost seem like fiction, almost seem too incredible to be real. Oftentimes, like no matter who our parents are to us or how they are to us, mm. you know, some part of us still views them. Is larger than life, right? Even if you know all their mm-hmm. faults, it can still be hard to think about them as human beings. <laughs> right, but what right. was it like to learn so much about your dad as a young man through this process? Like this, this person, your father, who's this complicated figure in your life, who's really close to you, but also in this larger than life sense, your dad is a literal history maker. Like, what was that like? funny you mentioned that like the way you think about your parents Mm -hmm. like if your parents like when i was eight i used to do jumping jacks right or whatever right jump rope you're still envisioning like a 70 year old person (laughs) with like pigtails doing jumping jacks right (laughs) and so i had heard these stories of my dad and i'd always thought of this old man right Mm -hmm. at some point in the process like these are children my dad and all of these folks, like these were all a bunch of kids trying to figure this out. Like Bob Moses was the elder and he was 26 years old, Right. you know? And that is when it was like, I'm not just treating him as a human, I'm treating him, I have to treat him as a human child, you know? A young person who is trying to figure out his life, trying to do finals, trying to date, trying to, you know, go about life, but also in the middle of this really traumatic period, you know? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to capture that. I wanted to capture that these were people who wanted to hang out, 
who were wanted to dance, who wanted to have drinks and party and things like that. And I think one of the things that, you know, I always saw him as a hero, but I saw him as a human, too, because I saw him as my dad, who was this flawed person as my dad, Mm -hmm. you know. And when you see somebody, it's easier to see some of their larger flaws when you see some of the things that they've struggled with as an adult. You know, like I saw my dad struggle to keep families together and do these things. So I could see, you know, I, I could always see the human side of him, even as I appreciated the heroic side. What was the most surprising similarity you discovered between you and your dad? I don't know. Let's see. The pri- That's a good question. I think that we're both sort of floaters. Our nature is to float. And so in this movement space, he sort of floats a little bit. He's in one place and then he's like, I want to go try to do this other thing. And that's always sort of been an inclination of mine to always sort of like go off and have this other thing. And in doing that, I think I learned a lot about how I have to resist so much floating when it comes to family. <laughs> like you can't float mm-hmm. with a family, you know, and that was something that, you know, he he's floated even in, in that critical part of his life, you know. And so I learned that my natural inclination is to just do things on my on my own time and what it takes to not do that and what how much energy and, and, and intention it takes to be in one place for people who need you. Mm. I'm not gonna lie, reading reading the book like hit me on a few levels. <laughs> you know, I also for what's worth have a you know a complicated relationship with my father. And I actually tried to do a similar project with him around the time my daughter was being born. He agreed to do the interview, but you know, pulled out at the last moment, kind of recognizing mm-hmm. the fear that you had. I think I longed for was I think what it felt like you achieved, which is like to kind of bring, you know, your dad, the man, like into focus, you know, Mm -hmm. like for better or worse to understand, you know, like how how the hell do we get here? I'm curious, like, how did your ability to get these stories and details about your father, like how did that shape kind of how you now think about him? This process was, I knew it was going to be a difficult sort of emotional process, but it was way more than I thought it was going to be. You know, uh, I think the biggest the biggest understanding that I, that we came to, which is at the very beginning of the book, is that, you know, my dad was 45 years old when I was born. Right. And so and we, had, we were on our way. We were about to move in, back into Mississippi. And when we moved to Mississippi, I was about six years old. And so he was doing all this rejoining this movement stuff and doing these speeches and everything. And I'd always just grown up thinking that was just what his life was. He did movement stuff. Then he was always part of this movement. What I did not realize until we were talking was that my childhood was formed by him going back to Mississippi for the first time mm. to experience. Like he was going through returning to the scene of this war as I was a child. And again, like we think about our parents always being old when they're younger, like when we think of them as they're older, we think they got it figured out. You think a 45-year-old man, 50-year-old man is going to have this stuff worked out. But he was in this movement space again for the first time since, you know, he'd be, I think he'd gone to Mississippi maybe once since the 60s, right? And now mm. he was back living there and, you know, meeting people who were, you know, Miss Annie Devine, who, you know, was integral in the movement, was saying, dude, you've been gone for 30 years. Why didn't you come back? You know, our children need you. Like, what are you doing? And he's going through this trauma, right? He's back in the same places where Megar Evers was murdered. We're eating food 
at a reservoir named after Ross Barnett, who like took his mattresses off of his bunk bed when he was in jail for freedom rides. You know, like we are in the middle of this. And what I learned was that he was going through this intense trauma of returning as he was trying to be my dad. Hmm. And so I learned everything about my childhood. Like I learned why my childhood was what it was through this book. And so, yeah, so that was that was way more than I, <laughs> way more than I bargained for. On that note, one of the big themes in the book feels like guilt, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's a letter in the book that details a trip you took to Bogalusa, Louisiana, to visit the daughter of a civil rights leader there. That woman is Barbara Hicks, who was the daughter of Bob Hicks, who led the Deacons for Defense and Justice in Bogalusa, Louisiana. And they were kind of like a militia of black men that had formed um, to protect the town uh, from the KKK because it was uh, basically just like overrun. I actually did a story about it on The Knot. Your father struggled to make that trip because he actually called for a demonstration with the deacons that turned especially, especially violent. And that's understandable. But for me, there's actually a little bit of a flip side. For what it's worth, my mom is from Bogalusa. And, you know, if it wasn't for the work of the deacons and the work that, like, your dad did with them, I think a lot of the change that did occur in Bogalusa, you know, might not have happened. And to be real, that cleared the way for me. Do you think this book, the making, the talking, allowed you both to, like, see through the guilt and see the actual legacy of the accomplishments because it feels huge. I don't know. I don't know. But that's one of my hopes that it does. Through the process of this book, he expected and I think deep down kind of wanted me to break him over the coals for, for being, you know, for the type of dad he was. I think he wanted to sacrifice himself through this book, you know, because he would say, you know, like, I'm going to be the villain, you know, and he would try to yeah. be very very open about how him him and um, Maddie's marriage fell apart, you know, later and the things he did and stuff like that and and was wanted it. Well, I don't want to say wanted, but expected everything to be detailed like that, you know, a survivor's guilt. Yeah. And he is now here to tell his story. And in the process of writing this book, his friends are dying as we're writing this book. Yeah. You know, Bob Moses died in the process of us writing this book. I hope as people talk to him, and as peers and things, I, I hope he'll see that. But I have no—I don't know if even something like this book can break that survivor's guilt. Hmm. The book is divided up into sections, and and many are in your father's voice. And it felt to me that he was addressing me as the reader with stories mm-hmm. from his life. Obviously, you know these are stories that you have collected and you know lovingly recreated and turned into a narrative. But it feels like he's talking to the reader. The other sections are letters from you to your father. That was really interesting to me because, I don't know, there's so much between you and your father that it appeared to me at the beginning of the book felt like it had gone unsaid or unacknowledged. And so it was really interesting to me in the book, you don't really seem to be talking to each other. It's kind of like you are taking on some of your father's story and sharing it with us. And you're also speaking very lovingly, but directly to him. Like, why did you decide to shift between voice in this way? Original idea was just going to be my dad's stories. Mm-hmm. And I did not want to be a part of it at all. Hmm. Like, I, And I think this was a meta look at, at my entire life in that like, I did not feel like I should be, I didn't feel like I deserved to be on the same page as him. Mm-hmm. Like my dad has done all of this stuff 
And I was shrinking myself because, like, I'm not, I haven't been through what he's been through. Mm. You know, like, I, nobody wants to hear about me. Like, he's this dude has been through everything, and he's changed his country. Nobody wants to hear me, right? And so, even on the page, like, my proposal, I had my voice was in footnotes. Like, my agent was like, you got to be in here somewhere. And I was like, okay, I'll do, like, the long footnote yeah. thing, right? And then people were like, no, we want you on the page. And the letters were the, I've, I've probably written a whole book of bad stuff in my voice that I tried to fit here because I couldn't find it. I couldn't mm. figure out where I could fit into this story. And I wrote a lot of bad essays and it just didn't work. And so I was like, let me just do these as letters. And he read them after they were done. We, we took a little retreat last May. We were going over the book and he was going over the stories and trying to make sure he had the memories together. And I, he knew that the letters were coming, but he didn't know they were coming then. So I just sort of gave it to him. And I said, when you're ready to read them, you know, read them and then we'll do that. And he read them and we talked and cried and, and like, yeah. you know, and he said, you know, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to ask you to change anything in these letters. This is your truth and this is your story. And that's that's it. <laughs> you know, what did it feel like to be seen like that from him? Like, I mean, for what it's worth, like I, my father and I ain't gotten there, <laughs> you, you know, like there's some stuff unsaid. I don't know how long it might continue to just be unsaid. I'm curious, like for you, like to open yourself up in those letters the way you did and then have him be able to directly engage with him. Like, what was that moment like for you? That was the most nervous I've ever been writing anything because hmm. I'd, I'd written them. And so I was like, I'm going to give these to him, you know, and we're stuck here. Like, we're at this place. Like, I'm not I'm not giving I was like, I want to give it to him. Like, we're like, I don't want to email them to him. And he reads, you know, and, and ha like we have to do it face to face, you know, like he has to read it. And we have to do it. And I think that it was good because I didn't know he was reading it when he was reading it. Like we were so we were at this like uh, like this sort of hotel, like it was like a two bedroom sort of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so he was out by like the water fountain and I thought he was in the shower the whole time. So he was like the water fountain run. So he comes out and I was like, you, you know, you've been in the shower. I was like, no, I read your letters. And I was like, what? Like, I was like, <laughs> not, I was like, no, wait, I didn't even like get the chance to freak out. Like, you, you know, like, can't believe you read them. So, yeah. So, you know, he read them and then he just sat down and, you know, it, it, it felt good to be seen in that way. You know, it felt good to be seen. And also, I think it felt good to know that he'd read something that that wasn't hurtful. Hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it was painful for him to read. Yeah. And it was painful for me to write some of it, but it wasn't something that I wrote to you know, air out dirty laundry or mm -hmm. to, you know, tear him down. It was just my truth about our our relationship. And I think it was probably, you know, going back to the guilt and how he sees himself, it was probably more loving than he thought it was going to be. First pitch the book, you had to even be goaded into like thinking about putting yourself in the footnotes. You said you felt like you didn't deserve to be on the same page as your father. Now that you're on the other side of that process, have you sort of come around to feeling differently about that? Like you've gone through this process where you've not just learned so much about him as a human being, but you've also, as it, you know, as you guys have just been discussing, like you also had this opportunity to be really seen by this father, this person that you saw in a certain way. I still sort of recoil a little bit when people are like, we're going to talk to Dave Dennis Jr. and senior two activists, you know, or mm -hmm. like two people fighting for, what's right or whatever people, you know, whatever people say, like, it's just like, it. I still sort of don't see myself on that same place. Yeah. I kind of mm -hmm. want to, no, no, just talk to him. Like, he's fine. And he's sort of like, you know, well, no, this is, you're the future 
person and I'll like talk to you. Like they can talk to you, you know? And so we sort of both sort of recoil in a lot of different ways hmm. about it. Um, and I'm trying to, trying to find more comfort in that. Like I do see this book as, you know, movement work. You know, mm-hmm. I do see it as telling a truth that needs to be told that has been hidden in a lot for a lot of people in a lot of different ways in this country. And I, and I do see a value to it, but it's just like I still you, we sit us together. I still am like, I'm, I'll just chill, you know, like he, <laughs> he just ask him all the questions, you know, something that feels like related to this. And it, it, like there's a through line in the book is like there's so many tussles with finding purpose. Like you detail your grandfather's struggles to cope after he lost his livelihood to racism. You know, you describe how as you were growing up, your father, he was, you know, intent on reigniting the movement, you know, even at cost to his relationship with you and your mom. You also even spoke yourself of feeling compelled to go to Charlottesville to protest after not having gone to Ferguson for the death of Mike Brown. Like learning more about how the pursuit of purpose affected the men in your life change how you thought about your own purpose and what you're willing to sacrifice to achieve it? Because of my childhood, because of what my da- how my dad approached the movement or was forced to approach the movement, my thing was like, you cannot be in movement work and be a good parent and husband at the same time. Mm. He was married at 21, thinking he was going to die any day, right? And when you are willing to sacrifice your life, you seem like, you know, like what else can you sacrifice? You can sacrifice anything. Like you figure you're going to die everything feels sacrificial. And mm-hmm. I was just like, I, that just did not, I just didn't see how you could be present with your children if you're thinking like that, you know? And, it's, and you know, it's not just dad. There are a lot of movement folks who grew up who struggled to come back to, I guess, you know, like, it's like again, like it's like war. Like you go off and then you got to come back and figure out how to re-enter society, you know, pretty much. Yeah. And there are a lot of, broken marriages and left behind children, things like that from folks who have been incredibly damaged by some that this country did, you know? And so when the Mike Brown thing happened, I, I felt like, you know, when Ferguson, everything happened, I, I had sort of felt like if I start this, I don't know how to turn it off. And I have a family at home and I do not know how to do this while taking care of them, you know, or while being present for them. I don't, I didn't think it was possible. And so one of the things that I came to understand is whatever your limit is, you're doing something. Yeah. You know, as long as you could do something, you're fine. And for my dad, what he felt as his shortcoming was as a father and husband. And so mm-hmm. if I am doing that, then I am doing movement work that completes what he wished he could have done better. After the break, we'll get into what care looks like for elders in the movement and how David's relationship with his father is today. To find that out, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox, There are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 
50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Not everything in life is flexible, but at Capella University, your education can be. With our game-changing FlexPath learning format, you're empowered to fit education into your life without putting other priorities on hold. FlexPath lets you set your own deadlines and adjust them when needed. You can take courses at your own speed and move on to the next one when you're ready. Imagine how a flexible education can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Welcome back. Welcome back. When we left off, David told us how writing the book changed his idea of purpose. Now it's time to get into the human toll movement work had on some of our most well-known figures in the fight for civil rights. There's a conversation between your father, who's like in his early 20s, and Medgar Evers, who's in his 30s at that point already with um, a wife and children. And Medgar Evers is basically echoing what what you're saying. Like, I love the movement, but I love my family more. That feels like a continuous reappearance that comes over and over again in the book. It seems like a conversation, you with your father, you with yourself, other people like Medgar Evers or other figures who show up in the book, as to whether or not the only real way to engage deeply with movement work is to be consciously willing to die for freedom. And your father recalls, feeling that willingness as a college kid. Um, Talk to us about how his decision to put his desire for freedom above his fear of death struck you now, not just as his son, but also as a man who's, you know, a little bit older than your father was back then. Yeah. I mean, I think that was, that's one of the central things I wanted to point out in the book is that these people were not like a lot, like my dad at 21. Yeah. He was, willing to sacrifice his life. But there are a lot of people who are not willing to sacrifice their life. <laughs> you know, like there's not people who wanted to, you know, like who woke up in the morning and said, well, I think I might die today. And go, like these people wanted to live. They had yeah. children, they had families, they had things they wanted to live for and their lives were taken hmm. for trying to get us free. And I think that, you know, there is this romanticism that this country has with painting these people as folks who had death wishes. You know, them being killed was some fulfillment of a prophecy that they themselves had put forth, right? When, no, they just wanted to live and love their families and they were murdered. You know, with my dad, it's like, you know, we go back and forth on it because he points to the Freedom Rides, this moment you mentioned of the Freedom Rides where he finally says, look, I'm willing to die for this. Mm -hmm. He points to this as the beginning of his movement work. But I'll tell him, like, before then you had, you know, you were like leading, you know, like you were doing these um, meetings and you were doing practices for sit-ins and drills you were making the banners and doing like you were in every meeting. Like, why isn't that the beginning of your work? You know, mm-hmm. it's and for him, 
that's that doesn't count as much as being at that moment that he was willing to die. And we haven't sort of reconciled. We just disagree. <laughs> like, I think you started before, you know. I think it's a complicated idea of what it means to be involved in the movement, what it means, like, what are you willing to give? You know, like, mm-hmm. at this point, I'm not willing to die for this. Yeah. You know, I have to be here. I have a wife. I have two children. They need me. You know, I want to be here for them. I'm not willing to die for this. Like, I feel what Mega Evers was was saying. Like, like if something happens to me and my life is taken, it is being robbed of people, you know, who I love dearly and I want to be here, you know? And so the the ending, like this this moment of this ending, you know, this this place that me and my dad are in now, like I do want people to think about, there are a lot of folks who are not here to have this moment that my dad is having. Yeah, there's a moment in the book where you pretty much say being beaten and jailed and killed isn't part of activist work. It's part of white supremacy reacting to activism. Mm. That was a really important delineation to me. And it sounds like what you're getting at now. It's not our duty (laughs) to die, like reframing that as a very vile reaction to marginalized people simply asking to live. I mean, you know, at that point where we're at with your father's story, it's really focused on getting voting rights and being able to sit Mm -hmm. at lunch counters, being able to go to the state fair. (laughs) Like, Yeah, yeah. it was just like, yeah, it was just this very basic, uh, first of all, like the fact that that anybody's highlighting things, my book's just like the coolest thing ever. Sorry, I'm I'm a newbie. I'm still a newbie to the book thing. Like the idea that you were sitting there with a highlighter, like I wish you'd have taken a selfie. Highlighter, we got dog here, pages (laughs) over here. We doing it, fam. I want all that. This is crazy. So uh, a lot of this book was written in the pandemic, in the George Floyd era. Mm -hmm. All of it, of course, was written after Donald Trump and Ferguson and all that stuff. And I think there's an idea of this is too big. This is too big for my brain. You know, like I don't even know where to begin. And you look at the videos. You look at people getting tear gassed. And you look at people, you know, going to jail. And you think, well, I don't want. I don't want to do that. So I don't. I don't know what to do. You know. Mm-hmm. And like my hope is that people read this and think about the families who were housing folks or the people. Like if you were a family in Mississippi and you housed a freedom rider for like a weekend and you cooked them fried chicken or you had people trying to get you registered to vote and you cook for them every Thursday, you were you were doing movement work. You know, Mm. you don't have to be in danger to be doing this movement work. And I hope it sort of like gives people an idea that you can like, you know, gradually take these steps to be involved. And eventually, you know, like my dad just wanted to go to the meetings, mm-hmm. to go on a date, yeah. you know, <laughs> and eventually you will find your place. You know, for me, you know, I did not want to go to Ferguson, but I can write about everything that, you know, is yeah. is going on and, and find my place in that and eventually get to a place where I feel like I'm doing some semblance of work. But you know, I don't want people. I, I think there's an intentionality of teaching folks that you have to die to to or have been killed to be part of this this work. It kind of brings up something as well, just about like how they got to understanding that, how our leaders got to feeling like you know things did have to be on the line like that. Mm-hmm. You know, like growing up, initially, you know, you hear so many stories and you you watch Eyes on the Prize, you read the books. And you can almost start to get you can almost start to feel removed from just how violent and traumatic the movement was for, like you said, children 
and young adults, you know, mm-hmm. being arrested, seeing your friends beaten or killed, then you're going to jail, like, and just being expected to go on after. Like, I'm curious, has getting the details of his stories and then connecting them with, like, the people who you've known from growing up, you know, as, like, aunts and uncles, like, has that changed how you think about what they truly endured? Like I said, I was going into this thinking about a war book, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, one of the things that is, that I thought about with this, but like I mentioned before, I thought about, like, what do I do in that space, the three months in between these big events, Mm -hmm. right? What I learned here was that there was no three months in between big events. You know, like once I put the dates together, these things were happening back to back to back to back, Mm. right? Like Mrs. Hamer going to jail and coming out and finding out or getting beaten in jail, coming out to find out that Megar Evers had been killed, right? Like these things are happening at the same time. And so what I realized was that, you know, in comparing this to war, like you go to overseas six months, you come back, right? Even while you are overseas, you fight, you go to your base, right? And you sleep in your base or whatever that is fortified and protected. And there's all this stuff around you. Nobody is coming and attack, you know, coming to your base on a, on a nightly basis. These folks were fighting a war in enemy territory, right? Like mm. where, the, like Mega Evers was shot. There was no home base. His yeah. home, he went literally home and was murdered in his house, yeah. at his house, you know? And so that was the thing, like the like thinking about the constant siege that these folks were under every day. Like when you wake up in the morning and when you go to work or you go to your like that was what what was really sort of like I was understanding. Like there was no like I'm going to do like a couple of days I'm do some paperwork and then like I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to go do movement stuff. Yeah. You know, like it was constant every day. And that's the thing that's like it's so hard for me to even think about yeah. you know like even when we think about the summer 2020 and we had this deluge of videos and violence and all this stuff like that is one thing and that was terrible but it's also like you are it's at your front door yeah. every day you know and that was the thing that was really hard it's still hard for me to even wrap my brain around it yeah i wonder if this also changes how we should think about how we're caring for like this cohort of people, you know, is there a new conversation we should be having about mental health or just like overall care of our elders in the movement? Yeah, my thing coming out of this is I think everybody from back then should get the same VA benefits. Like they fought a war yeah. in this country to preserve democracy. Yeah. Like that's what that's why people go to war, right? You go to war, you send folks to war to preserve democracy in the world, right? Mm. And you come back and you get VA benefits, right? Yeah. Like, there, these folks did that, you know, there was no difference. Like, there were bombs, spies, misinformation, assassinations, all that stuff here. And there are people with injuries that they suffer. Jerome Smith still, you know, has a, you know, his leg is damaged from getting beaten in Macomb, mm-hmm. you know. Um, George Raymond died from heart failure at the age of 30, right? Like, yeah. these, you know, like, these folks, you know— Mrs. Hamer died penniless. Annie Devine died penniless. Like these people did not have, they were, they are raising money to bury these folks, right? And a lot of the stuff that happened to them happened to them while they were fighting a war in America. So I do believe that all of these folks, if you are on a voter registration document in Mississippi in 1964, you should get VA benefits. That is honestly, 
I agree. That I am 100% <laughs> agree. 100% agree. Wow. I'm really glad that you said that. I feel like so much of like the book and the way that you thought about putting it together and the conversation we're having now is about reframing. Reframing racist violence from white people against <laughs> black people mm-hmm. as not like dying a valiant death, but like you had your life stolen because you wanted something basic. E- even reframing now, like people who fought <laughs> to have basic rights. Another thing that I think the book did really well is reframe these huge figures like Fannie Lou Hamer, like Medgar Evers, like MLK. <laughs> and I'm laughing because the first scene where we really meet MLK, he comes off a little like, <laughs> how do I put it? Your father's recounting of his ex- initial experiences with MLK, he's not afraid to think of him like a person and not a God. There's actually mm-hmm. a point in one of his reflections where he says that he still at that point thought of MLK as a God and not a man because he had not yet been in movement work long enough to understand that these people that were doing this work were just people like the rest of us. Why was it so important to humanize these figures in your book? Do you think we'll ever get to a place where we're no longer deifying these people and we see them as human beings? Yeah, I don't, I think it's it's important to, to look at the the function of the deification of these folks, mm-hmm. right? And like why they're deified in the first place. And I think that a lot of reasons that they're deified, I think that one of the reasons that, you know, in in school you learn about people who were murdered is because it wants to, you, there's an intention out, they're intentional about wanting to, you know, make you not want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like if I'm in eighth grade <laughs> and I'm like, okay, MLK, Martin Luther King did all these really awesome things. That's cool. What happened to him? Oh, Right. Like that's yeah. there is an, yeah. there is an intention to that, like Medgar Evers, like who do you learn about? Right. And yeah, I think that that's, you know, one of the one of the reasons that they're deified is to make is to distance them from believing that you can do something like that. Mm. Right. Like to believe that, you know, OK, I can't be MLK, so I'm just not going to do anything. Mm. Right. And I think that if you understand that, you know, my dad was just trying to get on, get a date, you know, <laughs> that, or if you understand that Martin Luther King was in this room with all these folks and sort of messed up, yeah. you know, like he said the wrong thing or, you know, or B. Elton Cox, bless his soul, was just like out there, you know, <laughs> messing up and causing riots and things like that. You know, like you can understand that the, that I can be a flawed person who can still do great things. Mm. One of the reasons that we deify these folks is to make you feel like that's not possible. And and that's what that's one of the things I wanted you to do. I want you to to look at this and be like, all right, if I'm if I'm go to a couple meetings and maybe this will turn out to be the thing that that is my calling. Because none of these folks, like I, none of these folks, like my dad wanted to be an engineer. Right. Right. Yeah. None of these people at the age of 10, none of us are 10 years old and saying, hey, I want to fight fight for voting rights yeah. for my life <laughs> you know like that's like nobody nobody dreams of doing this we do this because because we we see a problem and we want to fix it you know like there are there's a lot of dreams that get deferred on the way to trying to trying to get folks free wow you know this book is is about this incredible life that your father has led and all of the work that he did as a young person you know and and also the work that he did into his later years um, that also, you know, affected you in so many ways as his son. But the book is also really about you guys' relationship and kind of crossing this 
divide. David, how did writing this book change your relationship with your father? Um, so my, my dad and I had gotten to a good place, hmm. you know, before this book. We'd gotten to a, a good sort of place of understanding um, and, and, and an unspoken place mm. of understanding, mm. right? I know that one. Um, which was, yeah, 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 like, which is a, one that a lot of generational, is, you know, goes across generations, especially dads and sons, yep. right? Like, you get to this place where it's like, all right, what happened, happened. He's getting old. Like, either take it mm. <laughs> and, like, you know, and you're going to choose to love and, and come together and figure that out, you know? This book caused us to have the conversation, to have the talks to for me to ask him the questions and for him to be honest and to tell me as best he could how we got to this point and for me to understand it and accept it and and tell him how I felt about it. And now we're at a I mean we're at a better place than I could have ever imagined us being. We're at a fantastic place and I mean even just logistically part of it is just the fact that we were able to you know travel together mm-hmm. and we're going to travel together doing this stuff and we were talking more than we'd ever talked. We were Zooming, you know, of course, part of this was pandemic, during the pandemic, mm-hmm. so we were Zooming every Sunday face-to-face for two hours a day. A lot of dads and sons don't do that. Yeah. And so we were we were just spending time together. And so I think now we're in just a, a, just a, a wonderful, I don't want to say I didn't think it was possible, I just didn't know it existed. Mm-hmm. Well, we're happy about what we did get. Honestly, this, this book is beautiful, and uh, I'm really excited for other folks to, uh, to get a chance to read it, David. Thank you. Mm-hmm. For Colored Nerds was created by me, Eric Eddings, and Brittany Luce. It's supported by our production team at Stitcher, including producer Alexis Williams and social producer Elise Ellis. Marcus Hom is our engineer, and Peter Clowney is head of content. Our theme music is by Willie Green. And look, y'all, we love hearing from our listeners. We love you all so much. Seriously, it feels so good to be back with you. So please connect with us and tell us what you thought of this episode. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at For Colored Nerds and never miss an episode by following us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen. Life doesn't have a pause button. That's why Capella University's FlexPath Learning Format lets you set your own deadlines and adjust them if something comes up. Imagine how a flexible education can make a difference for you at capella.edu.